Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm glad you're all with us today. We are now beginning the post-election period, which will go on for some time here at uh, Political Rewind. But you know, political news never stops, and these days it barely slows down to catch its breath. So um, we will be having a lot to talk about in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Uh, We'll still take a look and reassess what uh, we think the uh, re-election of Raphael Warnock says about the state of politics in Georgia today. And um, we'll begin with that once I get the panel introduced. Uh, So let me do that immediately. Uh, Kevin Riley, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my uh, Thursday partner on the show. Kevin, great to have you here today. Uh, Thanks for being with us, even though you are wearing your Ohio State University uh, pullover because you've got the wrong team picked uh, when the playoffs begin in a few weeks. Well, thanks, Bill. It's great to great to be here uh, with you. And um, I have been looking forward to what I felt was an inevitable college football matchup when I came here 12 years ago. And so we're finally, finally <laughs> going to get it. Two great schools, two great football programs, two great groups of fans. So I can't lose in this game because if my Buckeyes win, I'll be thrilled. And if the Bulldogs win, it's really good for Atlanta and Georgia and the newspaper. So it's a no-lose game for me. Kevin Riley, we should point out that you're a native of Ohio. So that's the point of your uh, loyalty to the Ohio State uh, uh, team. Uh, But I have to say the way you just uh, uh, parsed that, Uh, means that you've really been paying attention to the way politicians are quoted in the uh, pages of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. When you listen to uh, to Political Rewind and read the AJC every day, you learn a few things. Okay. Well, we're glad you're here, of course. Um, Stephen Fowler, who is GPB's political reporter and has been working many, many hours covering the runoff election. He's also the host of Battleground Ballot Box, a podcast that you can uh, listen to wherever you can get from uh, whatever uh, uh, platform you get your podcast from. Stephen, do you have a new edition uh, uh, coming up? I will. Next Wednesday will be one of the last main episodes uh, because this uh, never-ending election cycle and season has actually, knock on wood, ended. And so it'll be a big wrap-up yeah. of everything that we've gone through for the last, gosh, two years. Well, thank you for being here uh, for today's show as well. State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver is back with us. Uh, Mary Margaret, uh, certainly I'm really eager to hear your thoughts on the Raphael Warnock uh, election. You uh, certainly you were disappointed, of course, that Stacey Abrams lost the governor's race. But we still have, and I'm sure you're happy about that, two Democrats representing Georgia in the United States Senate and will for uh, four more years, if not longer. It's a huge win uh, for Georgia. We'll continue to be in the national spotlight. Uh, Reverend Warnock is a a new 
national star, and I look forward to watching his continuing success along with Senator Ossoff. We have two strong, strong personalities and leaders in the Democratic uh, lineup on the national stage. Leo Smith joins us again. He has been a Republican political consultant over the years. He's the CEO of Engaged Futures, a government affairs uh, uh, company. Uh, Leo, you, like a lot of Republicans, I think, at this point, are now reassessing what the future is of the party, both here in Georgia and nationally. Indeed we are, and that's one of the you know silver linings of having had a competition is to see how you can perform better in the future. And here we are at that moment where the Republicans certainly have a lot of wounds to lick and a lot of ways to consider. All right. Um, I want to start talking about uh, politics, uh, uh, Georgia politics, but, but I do think we have to take a moment, Kevin, to say the entire country is, I think it's safe to say, relieved to have learned that Brittany Griner, uh, the NBA star, has been released. She's been held in a Russian prison. She was sent to a Rus- Russian work camp. The administration has been uh, looking to make a deal to get her released. They finally did. They exchanged uh, uh, her for a Russian arms dealer. There were many people who thought they sh- the United States shouldn't have made that deal. But Brittany Griner is now on her way home. And um, we'll talk about it in just a moment, uh, Kevin. But um, President Biden, if you listen to NPR News, made remarks about his uh, uh, pleasure, how glad he is, grateful that she's been released. And um, at that same event, uh, Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle Griner, made comments which included her concerns about another American being held in a Russian prison, Paul Whelan, who's been there for four years, held uh, accused of espionage. Let's just listen to what Sherelle Griner had to say. BG is not here to say this, but I will gladly speak on her behalf and say that BG and I will remain committed to the work of getting every American home, including Paul, whose family is in our hearts today as we celebrate BG being home. We do understand that there are still people out here who are enduring what I endured the last nine months of missing tremendously their loved ones. So thank you everybody for your support. Um, and today is just a happy day for me and my family. So um, I'm going to smile right now. <laughs> um, thank you. So Kevin, uh, as I said, we'll turn to Georgia politics in a moment, but uh, this is indeed uh, wonderful news. Right. She had been sentenced to nine years and basically a prison camp uh, for having uh, two vape cartridges that contained hashish oil, right? I mean, it, it, was a, it, it was a case that got so much attention and got uh, uh, those who were her supporters just absolutely refused to let it be forgotten. And it, it, it finally has worked. All right. Um, thank you for weighing in on that. And, of course, we'll be hearing more news on uh, NPR later today and all things considered about her release Um, So let's move on and talk now about the election, which finally ended, as you pointed out, Stephen Fowler, on Tuesday night with Raphael Warnock being reelected. So let me start with an open-ended question for you, Stephen, and then ask everybody else on the panel to weigh in on this. Um, We now have, again, uh, Warnock reelected. There are two Democrats serving in the U.S. Senate from Georgia, as I've said, Uh, but the entire uh, state— is still controlled by an all-Republican 
a group of uh, statewide constitutional officers. The General Assembly is still dominated by Republicans. Obviously, the governor's office is held by Brian Kemp. So um, talk a little bit about what you think uh, this election says about whether Georgia really is trending purple or not, and what you think some of the factors are that, that allowed Warnock to overcome the Republican trend across the rest of the statewide ticket. Well, I, I do think Georgia is still a purple state, and the election results with both Brian Kemp winning big and Raphael Warnock winning big do reflect the purple hue that Georgia's going to have for a while. You know, elections don't suddenly change and flip overnight. It's not like you vote for one Democrat in one election and then all of a sudden the floodgates are open and everything's blue. But uh, if you look at all of the factors that came together in this midterm election for Georgia, um, there were overwhelming factors that supported Brian Kemp's reelection, regardless of the vote for Joe Biden in 2020 or Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in 2021. And if you look at the Senate race, um, even though Republicans did well everywhere else, there were a lot of overwhelming outside factors that pointed to Raphael Warnock winning, despite Republicans winning all the statewide offices. And so if anything, what this does for the next two years, Bill, is keeps Georgia in the driver's seat at the front of the conversation about what Democrats and Republicans' future looks like, what 2024's presidential race looks like and the Senate map looks like and everything like that. But, I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense for there to be Democrats at the federal level, Republicans at the state level, and saying, oh, yes, this is anything but a uh, purple state. So all that said, yeah, we're purple. Mary Margaret? We're in a transition, and the transition is accelerating. Uh, Obviously, uh, Reverend Warnock is a very high-quality, very engaging, very attractive candidate who had plenty of money and plenty of expertise around him, and he was uh, opposed by a terrible candidate. Uh, the, The arrogance of the Republican leadership that thought Georgia voters, Georgia common sense voters, uh, Georgia mainly a moderate state, not a far right point, we're going to accept a really terrible candidate uh, in opposition to a a rising star nationally. Uh, Credit goes to uh, Reverend Warnock, but Georgia's in a transition. The the fact that I'm looking at significantly, I talk about a lot, is that 83 members of the 236 members of the House and Senate of the Georgia General Assembly are non-white. That is a third. And that represents Georgia's changing face uh, of Hispanic, Pan-Asian caucuses and the way in which we are fast changing into a nationally recognizable state of importance politically. Leo, uh, if you don't mind, I want to frame the question to you uh, slightly differently. Um, You know, Mary Margaret talks about what an awful candidate Uh, Herschel Walker was. I think many people, Republicans and Democrats alike, agree that uh, he he was a flawed candidate. Um, As uh, Chuck Bullock said on our show on Monday, he had more skeletons than closets to put them in. And yet, and yet, he forced a runoff and he came within a very small margin of almost being elected. 
So I wonder what that says about how whether the purpling of Georgia is uh, moving along at a pace that uh, that Mary Margaret thinks it might be. Well, I mean, Democrats have been really eager to plant a flag as to Georgia's big demographic shift for some time now, since 2010. And that's why I came on with the party in 2013. The Georgia Republicans were concerned about that. The demographic shifts are real. We are purpling. There's no doubt about it. We have counties like Forsyth County even starting to be a pinker shade of red. And then you saw also in this runoff how there were many voters in some red counties, even counties that Herschel won in the general, that he didn't win in the runoff. Um, so we even saw flipped counties. So this is a real thing. There's no doubt about it. But it doesn't have to be a negative thing. You know, Bear Bryant at University of Alabama saw that he needed to jump onto the changing times in order to keep winning. Republicans have to figure out how to make sure that they can speak to people across race, across difference. Now, I want to push back a little bit on how excellent of a candidate, really, we might just absolutely stake a flag on uh, Warnock. I mean, the fact is, is that let's think about it. He ran against Kelly Leffler, no political experience, not a great communicator, certainly not a great communicator. He ran against Herschel Walker, no political uh, experience, not a great communicator, actually pretty bad communicator. And a campaign that Chip Lake and, and Scott Paradise, his consultants, you know, I think they struggled a lot to, to, to really get him to be a traditional candidate, and he wasn't. And I saw that he had, you know, when he did his concession speak, folks, um, that was a different Herschel than we saw in the campaign. And that just tells you what kind of conflict and dissonance there. Warnock's a great man, but he really still hasn't been tested in my book. Um, Kevin, I think there are an awful lot of observers who would say that Leo is painting a picture more negative than maybe uh, is deserved. Warnock was disciplined in the way he ran his campaign. He ventured outside of his uh, the geographic areas that would be his base. He campaigned in parts of red Georgia, in rural Georgia. He was able to mix the really harsh, harsh, uh, aggressive ads attacking uh, Herschel Walker, both by the PACs that supported Warnock and his own campaign's ads, with that kind of positive message that, uh, you know, he used the first time around walking the dog and that sort of thing. Uh, but go ahead and make whatever remarks you want on, on where you think Georgia stands. Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, Warnock took advantages, took advantage of the breaks he had. He played the cards that he got well. And so uh, that, I think, is a good sign in any candidate and, and any person. Um, to me, you know, I, I, when you step back and look at the next big, you know, election we'll have, which will be the 2024 presidential election, I don't think either party believes they can win without winning Georgia. I know that a complicated analysis of the electoral vote would, would probably create other paths. And so what do we have here? We have uh, an electorate, you know, uh, Representative Oliver called them common sense voters. We have common sense voters who have rejected Donald Trump. So that line of Republican candidacy apparently will not work. We have uh, Democrats in the state, or rather a state that has very low opinion of our president, who is likely to be the Democratic candidate. And in fact, Warnock ran away from the president generally. I mean, I think it's, that's a fair statement. So it really remains to be seen. Can, can both parties look at what happened in Georgia this year and figure out 
how do you want run a winning presidential campaign in this state now? It's in transition. It's slightly purple. However you want to describe it, it's a hard place to win. And how are they going to do that? Um, I'm fascinated, Stephen, by two different approaches in the Republican Party to what happened to uh, in the election the other night. Uh, one of them from Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, who we now know famously told CNN he went in, he waited in a long line and early vote to early vote and got into the booth, looked at the uh, screen and said, I can't vote for either of these people, Herschel Walker or Raphael Warnock. He's gone on to write an op-ed piece for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in which he's very critical of the party mechanism which gave Herschel Walker the candidacy. And he says, at no point during his candidacy did Walker offer a serious, concrete policy proposal on the issues facing everyday people um, and went on to criticize him for being completely unfit to run. Meanwhile, on the other side of it, Marjorie Taylor Greene was on Steve Bannon's podcast the other night, and she was critical of the fact that Walker didn't call upon her to campaign with him across the state. Uh, she blames the loss not on Donald Trump's uh, anointment of Herschel Walker. She said this as a quote, this is for Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and the rest of the Republican senators. You guys are the reason why we are losing Republican races all over uh, the country. Two extremes, the same party. Well, one of the few smart political plays that Walker's campaign probably did do was not campaign with Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, in the election uh, because Marjorie Taylor Greene can win in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district because it is overwhelmingly Republican, and she's the type of candidate that can muscle through a primary and then coast in a general. But Herschel Walker was not that type of candidate. And actually, if you look at the data, uh, the county-level data from the election so far, some of the few places where Herschel actually did better in the runoff than he did in the general was the 14th Congressional District, uh, where you had uh, nobody on the ballot but Herschel. You know, I think having a serious competitor to Green actually ended up helping Democrats because there was another option. But, I mean, the, the two extremes of the party, it, it goes back to there's the things that campaigns can control, their candidates, their messaging, uh, how they spend their money, and there's the things that they can't control, like the national environment, who they're running against, and so on and so forth. And in this case, in the Senate race, the national environment was in theory, begging Republicans to get elected in the Senate race because you had high inflation, unpopularity of President Biden and other things like that. But the reality is the specific Georgia flavor of this election in Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock and the way things have gone uh, led to this outcome in that, you know, if Donald Trump had not done what he did after the 2020 election and if Georgia had not been a state that had come around to thoroughly rejecting Trump because of his attempts to overturning the election, even a Trump-backed Herschel Walker might have had a chance. But, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum. And I think Republicans haven't quite yet put their thumb on the right diagnosis for why they have had struggles these last couple of years. And it's not just Trump. It's not just Herschel Walker. And it's not just Jeff Duncan and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Leah, what do you think of those two very different forces in the Republican Party in Georgia? Well, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene is right on something, but half right, in, a, in that there are many people who weren't called down from Congress to help out Herschel Walker. There are many people who could have helped him and raised his profile um, right here in Georgia uh, that could have helped him. I mean, you got Melvin Everson, the last Republican elected to the state house, who could have been a surrogate for Herschel, but wasn't. You've got people like the, the people who lost in the primary who didn't jump on to be surrogates for him. you got a 49 senators, other than Lindsey Graham and a few other people who liked the show, the road show. Um, they didn't come down. The woman Republican from Washington, D.C. did not come down. This is not Marjorie Taylor Greene that needed to come, but there were people who needed to come who did not like Herschel or were not called. I don't know which one it was. Did the consultants win this because they made a lot of money, but Herschel lost? Or was it Herschel just being, I think it was a little bit of a boat, um, because Kemp came on at the end. Kemp kept, kept saying over and over that no one's asked me to campaign with them. So this is a real thing. We were outspent three to one, so we did not raise a whole lot of money, although Mitch McConnell sent $14 million here to the state. We didn't keep up there. People did not like Herschel, and they probably didn't like the way that the campaign was being run either. So there's the way that we do things. We did not have an absentee ballot chase program. We did not encourage early voting. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you know, so early voting was not a big, big push. There's a lot of things in the way that we ran the campaign that also can improve. You know, Mary Margaret, uh, Governor Kemp, of course, who is certainly the most popular Republican in the state right now, uh, did in fact step up in the runoff. He was out, he went out on the campaign trail, did an appearance with Herschel Walker. He also did a direct into camera endorsement of him for a commercial. And I've gotten um, notes from listeners of ours who said to me, the fact that Brian Kemp was willing to put some of his uh, reputation on the line to go out there on behalf of Herschel Walker um, may say something about uh, whether or not, it, he, did he tarnish himself at all uh, by uh, going out there for Herschel Walker? Your thoughts? I'm watching uh, Governor Kemp closely in terms of his uh, daily efforts to uh, establish a national profile. I think that his uh, stepping forward for uh, Herschel Walker, uh, the positives greatly outweighed the negatives in terms of the national profile. He would have looked selfish. He would have looked uh, me, me, me uh, if he had refused to help Herschel Walker, who in, in some ways is a sympathetic character, uh, in some ways a very sympathetic character. Uh, totally unsuited for the role that uh, the Republican establishment put him in. Uh, Brian Kemp's national uh, agenda is something I have a lot of curiosity about. And it's a, probably a positive image for Georgia. And what I'm also watching is the extent to which the national press is going to elevate Brian Kemp based on the success of his election of beating the you know, the, the the bad, bad, bad image that the Republicans wanted to and successfully applied to Stacey Abrams. But I'm also interested how that pairs with the national fascination with Marjorie Taylor Greene that is bad for Georgia, bad for Georgia. My political science question, and somebody knows the answer to this, what percentage of the Georgia population is truly enamored with Marjorie Taylor Greene? Is it 10%? Is it more than that? 
who really will support her as opposed to another Republican. I'm really curious about that and contrasting that with the national image that Brian Kemp is trying to establish. Well, I mean, Stephen, obviously you're a guy who does a lot of data crunching, uh, but in, in many ways, Mary Margaret's question is unanswerable since Mary, uh, 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 we know that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has not had to stand for election with anything more than her 14th congressional district where she remains entirely possible. But one answer in, in a way to Mary Margaret's question is that there is no question that Marjorie Taylor Greene has positioned herself um, in relation to Kevin McCarthy's efforts to become speaker. Uh, she's backing him and she's putting herself in a position to be a much more powerful voice among Republicans in Washington. What that says about her popularity across the state of Georgia, we just don't know at this point. Well, right. Well, I mean, I, to, to kind of talk about earlier, there are really three Republicans in Georgia that represent one thing to national level watchers and viewers, something different to the reality here on the ground in Georgia. I mean, case in point, Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp uh, overwhelmingly won his primary when national watchers were saying, oh, he's in danger of losing because Trump endorsed somebody else. He convincingly won against Stacey Abrams again, um, got more support from moderate voters and independents than some national people were thinking and some Democrats made it seem like was possible. Um, arguably the most popular politician in Georgia, popular Republican in Georgia. You have Jeff Duncan, the outgoing lieutenant governor, who's very popular at the national level for Democrats and others to point as an example of, oh, look, he's calling out his own party. Fundamentally, in Georgia, not a lot of Republicans really like him or care what he says. Um, and then you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene, who also is in the camp of most Republicans in Georgia are embarrassed by her. Um, the electoral results statewide suggest somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene would not have the same statewide level of popularity. But she's very popular with the national fringe, farther right section of the Republican Party. So it's really interesting of what's going on with people's national views of Georgia as Georgia becomes more popular and what actually goes on in the state. Because I think if you didn't live in Georgia, you might think that there are a ton of people like Jeff Duncan and a ton of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. But the reality is it's a Brian Kemp state, at least for the Republican Party. Um, Kevin, I think that Stephen makes a really good point. I think you can kind of do a bank shot to, in a way, answer Mary Morgan's question. Now, I, I agree it's totally speculative, but... Marjorie Taylor Greene has aligned herself closely with Donald Trump. Donald Trump's candidate for governor, David Perdue, was killed by Brian Kemp. He was creamed in that election. Um, uh, Donald Trump's candidate for uh, uh, secretary of state, all of his candidates, uh, including Herschel Walker, went down in flames. So I think Stephen's point Again, it's speculative, suggests that a Marjorie Taylor Greene out there in that same fringe world wouldn't be able to do particularly well on a statewide ballot. I think Stephen's right about that. Um, I mean, let's not forget that, uh, that Trump's candidate won the lieutenant governor's job, um, right? I mean, but but other than that, uh, uh, yes, his candidate's lost. But as you pointed out at the top of the show, Bill, we still have Republicans. I mean, Herschel Walker is the only Republican who lost his statewide race. As a practical matter, I think that tells us something. 
and you look at Brian Kemp and how he's perceived, you look at Brad Raffensperger, how he's perceived. I think we learned something from that. I got to get to a break. I know there's more that uh, the panel wants to say about this. I also, though, want to talk about a story that we are following this morning. Lauren Groargo, who is uh, without question Stacey Abrams' closest advisor through all of her uh, uh, campaigns for uh, for both of her campaigns for governor, has now come out and um, uh, explained why she thinks Stacey Abrams lost that race. Uh, by such a big margin to Brian Kemp. And I want to get the panel's thoughts on that. We'll do that more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Leo Smith, Mary Margaret Oliver, Stephen Fowler, and Kevin Riley join me for today's Political Rewind. Um, Mary Margaret, the uh, uh, Raphael Warnock victory certainly has, as uh, panelists, including you, have already said on this show, raised the national profile even higher for uh, Georgia. Well, tell me what you think about the Democratic National Committee's uh, plan uh, to move Georgia to near the front of the pack in presidential primary states in 2024. I mean, we would be, I, th- you know, we would come after uh, South Carolina. We'd vote on the same day that Nevada would have its primary in February. Um, what do you think about the idea of moving Georgia toward the top, to the top of the heap? I think it's a good idea. Uh, the quaintness, the historical quaintness of New Hampshire and Iowa has some charm to it, but it's not helpful in terms of really measuring the strength of a candidate uh, nationally. Uh, I like the fact that Georgia is a very significant political state, and I think democratic leadership has to recognize uh, the change (laughs) that's coming across the South, all across the South, and across uh, our nation. I think it's a good move. Kevin? Well, I mean, it's always a great debate, right? Would you rather be early and set the tone and maybe uh, create a front runner? Or would you like to come a little later and be the state that crowns someone as the uh, nominee? But I do think anything that makes Georgia a more prominent and important player on the national stage, given where our state is, uh, how it's changing, and the just the interests of those of us who live in Georgia that if this makes it more important in the process, then I think that's a good thing, and we will enjoy that. Stephen, let's point out a couple of things as I bring you into this question. Uh, number one, if, in fact, Joe Biden decides he is for certain going to run for reelection, in some ways this will be a soft launch in 2024 for a Georgia being one of the first states to vote because they're there will, it'll be unlikely that the nomination will be in doubt. Uh, but the other thing we should point out uh, that, that really uh, could be a stumbling block is that the legislature is going to have to approve an earlier date for the Georgia primary. And Republicans have sent sort of mixed signals 
uh, as to whether they want to do that. So far, the Republican National Committee has said they're going to maintain the same order that they've traditionally had. Stephen? Well, yeah, it's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger that's in the driver's seat of selecting and announcing when the primary is, not the legislature, although I'm sure they weigh in um, with their thoughts and opinions. But it's it, 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 we have it's a complicated thing. You know, obviously, an election date like the general election is set. There's rules. We know when it is. But these presidential primaries have multiple different factors, um, some in some cases, like Iowa, are like run by the parties and not necessarily by elections officials. And that's how you had the debacle with the uh, Iowa caucus app that was a problem in 2020. But then you have the calendar that Democrats want to have and are changing the order and things like that, the calendar that Republicans have and set, and then the elections officials that actually have to run them. So, so far, we have not seen an agreement on those things. So there's nothing to say that if Georgia does come earlier in the Democratic presidential primary process that the Republicans would move theirs any earlier and or that the Secretary of State would set a date that would accommodate either one of those. Because I think the earlier comments that have come out from the Secretary of State's office is that they're not going to do anything to jeopardize anyone's delegates. And so if I think the current Republican rules say, you know, these are the states that go in. Otherwise, you don't get delegates. Um, Mary Margaret, real quickly, uh, Stephen follows this, uh, in, in, you know, he's very, very closely involved in covering this stuff. In the past, the legislature has been asked to approve or disapprove a primary date. Do you know if that's a requirement or is it just something that's been done uh, in the past to get consensus on a date? I'm remembering Zell Miller moving the primary date for Bill Clinton, and that was a strategy. Uh, I think the legislature has to approve something, act something. I don't think it's all up to uh, Raffensperger. And I come back to Brian Kemp's national posture. If Brian Kemp, hypothetically, in in the view of some, and the, and the rumors or the gossip of some, is running for a presidential position, is already kind of turned the corner away from Georgia and is running for president, hypothetically, then he wants Georgia up front. And if you're a Brian Kemp character, a candidate, high-quality incumbent, popular governor, uh, what's best for him? Uh, what's best for the business community? We are a huge media state. If you're talking, again, about spending a billion dollars in Georgia on politics around the 2024, we spent a billion dollars in Georgia on politics. What does the business community want? Don't they want that money here? Leo? <laughs> I still have on my office bookshelf a red and black SEC primary election that Brian Kemp primary <laughs> campaigned for in 2015 as Secretary of State, where he had the sole authority to make that happen, and he did. And that March 1st primary made a huge difference for the early delegates. And I mean, it was monstrous. And so the Democrats are trying to do the same thing. The difference is they don't have the Secretary of State's office. And so this is going to be quite a challenge. Um, well, we'll see how that all plays out. And um, it sounds to me like uh, the Secretary of State in 2015 made the decision uh, to do that, Brian Kemp. Uh, whereas you're right, Mary Margaret, I remember in 1992, we were in fact at the uh, midterm meetings of the Democratic National Committee in Los Angeles. And Zell Miller called uh, a couple of us, Tom Baxter, who was then the political columnist for the AJC, and me, 
uh, into a little private meeting and he said, I'm going to try to ask, I'm going to ask the legislature to vote on moving Georgia's primary up to an earlier date so that, frankly, I can help Bill Clinton. How do you think you'd all report on that? So it's interesting to hear the difference between what you remember in 92 and what Leo reminds us happened in 2015, Mary Margaret. There's a leadership of Republicans in Georgia, and I think they probably will talk to each other. Uh, I think the truest thing that I've heard is how complicated all this matter is. But there's a there is a leadership Republican uh, in every single office of the Capitol, governor or Senate House. So I think they're going to talk about this and what's best for Brian Kemp. Stephen? It, I think it's possible that it used to require legislative approval before because up until the Shelby versus Holder decision, voting changes had to be pre-cleared by the Department of Justice. And so uh, because look back to 2020, uh, Raffensperger set the presidential primary date for March 24th. He did that in 2019. And then when the pandemic was underway, he moved it later. And so um, I, both are true. But this is something that now nobody, the federal government doesn't oversee voting changes in Georgia so it could be up to Brad Raffensperger, who says it's up to the way the parties have done their bylaws. Fowler, this is why you are our lead political reporter at Georgia Public Broadcasting. Let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show and come back. I still want to talk about the Lauren Grow Awargo story, and we'll do that in a minute. Kevin Riley, as I said a little while ago, Lauren Growargo is, uh, without question, uh, Stacey Abrams' closest political advisor. She sent out a long series of tweets yesterday in which she broke her silence on uh, what happened and why Stacey Abrams wasn't able to win the governor's mansion this second time around. I'll just mention a couple of quick things, and then I want you to uh, start the conversation off on this. Number one, she says that um, up to the, the 2020 election, Stacey Abrams lent her time and efforts to helping uh, Joe Biden and other Democrats across the country win their races. And while that was going on, uh, Republicans, conservatives, she says, quote, poisoned Abrams' image, which really put her in a bad position to start a 2022 race. And then she goes on to say that the media played a large role in creating the impression that Brian Kemp was, in fact, a moderate uh, because he opposed Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And she blames us for uh, not acknowledging how far to the right Brian Kemp really is, among other things. So start us off on this uh, conversation, Kevin. Well, let's just agree that it's a sort of poorly timed to uh, come out with this uh, the day after, you know, this big Democratic victory, which just seems sort of sort of odd. Right. And um, you may have to remind me of this bill after the Ohio State Georgia game. But, um, you know, sour grapes never comes out quite that well. When, when you lose, what you do is you acknowledge the person or team that beat you and and the work that they did. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I you know, I haven't been around so long, but I was here when Jason Carter ran against Nathan Deal, and he got – Stacey Abrams only did one percentage point better 
than Jason Carter, if my research proves out. Now, I know there was, you know, there were other factors there, but Jason got 44.9% of the vote in, in, when he ran against Deal when Deal was trying to get reelected, and Stacey Abrams got 459 That's a one-point difference. So I, it's hard to look at it and not be critical of the campaign, just looking at the numbers. I'm not a campaign consultant, and I know her, and I have deep respect for her. Um, but, wow, I mean, uh, Stacey lost by a lot. Mary Margaret, um, we have had uh, both on the Republican and the Democratic side some very smart political professionals advising campaigns. Kemp's uh, campaign, Herschel Walker's uh, team, they didn't, he didn't pay attention to them, but they were a really first-class group of political consultants. And you've got to put Lauren Growargo in that category. She has been incredibly smart in her thinking about politics for Stacey Abrams. So what do you make of, of her comments now? I agree with Kevin. The timing is painful. Losing is painful. Losing is painful. And when you combine the emotion, the disappointment of across Georgia for people, for people like me that really believed in Stacey, and you combine that with a billion dollars going out to political consultants and media groups, then you have a situation where people are in a competitive, still in a competitive mode, and want to do an analysis that for some people. Uh, represents a view, a painful view that they have of the process. I think what is true is that Stacey had several, four years to be a national target of others. She was a national celebrity, but she was also a national target. The, the slamming of her uh, celebrity or whatever the slams were was consistent and very, very uh, impactful. When you compare it to, again, an incumbent, an incumbent who doesn't come evil, uh, I think what's accurate about the analysis is Donald Trump comes evil. And compared to him, <laughs> compared to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, everybody, everybody else in the Republican camp uh, of the variety of folks that Stephen described doesn't look that bad. I mean, they're not evil people. Mm. Nothing you could say would say that Brian Kemp is an evil person, even though it's true that he had very conservative, very conservative, consistent in the Republican playbook, anti-choice, uh, all of the uh, pro-gun, all of the things that are painful to most Georgians, in my opinion. He had all those positions. But he was an incumbent guy who did not come evil. Stephen, um, I, I do think uh, I want to make one quick comment about um, the fact that Lauren says that it was the media that helped create this image of Kemp uh, as a moderate. I, I certainly know at, at Political Rewind, and I suspect in your reporting as well, we talked about the phenomenon in which the very conservative Brian Kemp was being portrayed as being more moderate simply because he opposed Donald Trump. And, and I think certainly on this show, every time we talked about Kemp uh, in terms of uh, Trump, we said uh, this, this creates the impression he's more moderate. We'd point out the fact he passed one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. He's had uh, one of the freest policies on guns. So I'm not quite sure that resonates at least the way I think about coverage that Abrams got. Well, right. I mean, when people say the media, nine times out of 10, it's 
places and people that wrote things I didn't like. Um, because, you know, when you, you paint with a broad brush, you know, you don't tend to get as nuanced a detail a picture. But I, the, the thing that I come back to is I think Stacey Abrams has spent her entire political career and her entire life doing everything with planning and intention. And I think she's done all this planning and intention to position herself in a political arena, running a race and a campaign and on issues in a universe that ceased to exist after her 2018 loss. If there was a world where Donald Trump, again, if Donald Trump didn't happen in 2020 and do things the way he did with election denialism, if the coronavirus pandemic didn't happen and upend life and realign people's politics around issues like the economy and healthcare and things like that, if those things didn't happen, we might have had a different race. Now, that race could have been Stacey Abrams losing by two again instead of a much higher margin. But the political world in Georgia shifted after 2018, and Stacey Abrams, a combination of the couldn't and didn't pivot to meet that reality, and it goes back to those external factors that you can't control. Stacey Abrams in this race ran the best race and the best campaign that she could, but given everything else beyond her control uh, and some things within her control, that, that the outcome's what it was. And I think Warnock winning is a testament to that, and I think is a testament to even though Democrats got blown out statewide, Georgia is still a very closely divided state. Leo? Yeah, I know we're up on break. So, look, the political appetite of Stacey Abrams is going to be sacrificial. She sacrificed a lot so that Republicans would have a harder time doing something that they would have. On Kemp, Kemp, the, the Trump thing, the positioning of him, good versus evil, that's less of a thing that I think Democrats are making the debate. He was a defective incumbent. As we look at AJC's uh, headline today, 35 new jobs from the SK plant. I have direct experience with Governor Kent trying to create the ecosystem to make sure jobs get created in Georgia, to make sure that teachers get extra pay. Um, that's effective leadership. And I know that he's done that deeply in black business communities as well. And that's why we saw minority engagement turn out for Governor Kemp that was close to Governor Deal, who did school choice and prison reform. That, that's just hard for someone to run against. And, you know, I have empathy for Stacey. Well, the simple fact is running against an incumbent, especially an incumbent governor, will always be a very, very difficult challenge. Uh, Mary Margaret, uh, let's talk just for a couple minutes that we have left about the legislative uh, session that starts in just a matter of weeks now. Um, I'm, I'm curious about a couple aspects of it. Um, one, the first pre-filed bill uh, for the session was from Democrat Darshan Kendrick of Lithonia, and she basically has filed a bill that takes a shot across the bow against Georgia's restrictive abortion law, in which she says, essentially what she's saying in the broadest terms is, the state needs to take more financial responsibility for children born to mothers who otherwise would have had an abortion. Um, it's not going to pass, but it does raise the question of what might happen with abortion law in the upcoming session. I don't think the Republicans want to talk about abortion in the 23 session. That's kind of the rumors I'm hearing. 
Uh, Georgia does need to take more of a leadership role to help women and poor children. Uh, There's no question about that. That's a conversation I'm happy to participate in. The other bill, the Jasmine Clark file, pre-file, to give a minimum six weeks of pre- of early voting is really a more real conversation uh, that we need to have uh, amongst us about how we correct, uh, expand, and help voters early voting. I'm happy to talk in the 23 session about poor women and poor children and the needs they have, and also about the early voting rules. So um, let me just go back to abortion for a moment. The reason I said it's not going to pass, I just, I just think that it's not likely a Democratic bill about abortion is going to get very far. And I think you agree with that. But here's the other reason I asked that question, uh, Kevin, is Governor Kemp had two different answers about uh, calling for even stricter abortion restrictions in the upcoming session. In one debate, he said he didn't want to do anything. In another, he said he'd be guided by what the Republicans in the legislature tell him. And we know how conservative much of that Republican caucus is, Kevin. Right. I mean, but I do think there's a couple other things to remember in all this. First of all, we know from the polling we've done at the AJC that a large majority of Georgians do not want more restrictive abortion laws without question. And then second is we still have that case that's working its way through the courts about whether that law is even uh, enactable. You know, I, I, I get that the uh, Supreme Court issued a stay while they consider it. So that heartbeat bill, as it's been called, um, incorrectly, by the way, but the heartbeat bill uh, is in effect. But if, in fact, the Supreme Court throws that out, I, I would ask whether the legislature is going to go near that or just let the old law stand. I don't think the governor wants to take that on. Uh, I'm glad you uh, mentioned that, that, Kevin. Thank you for that. Um, but, uh, Stephen, let's talk very briefly, because we're running out of time, about what Mary Margaret said is uh, something she is interested in. That's a bill that would extend this runoff period from four to six weeks. Um, we know the four-week uh, early voting period, we got a lot of people turning out, but it created long lines at the limited number of polling places. Absentee balloting is harder than ever. So it'll be interesting to see whether Republicans are willing to move forward with extending that period. Well, another thing to consider and look at is there's also substantial lobbying going on, both behind the scenes and in public, of just getting rid of the runoff, of making it plurality or of making it ranked choice instant runoff voting. Um, I think just the crush of advertising and spending and flyers and TV ads and everything, people are sick of it. And so I think you could see a bipartisan push to just say, you know what, the person with the most vote wins. Uh, Leo? Yeah, I mean, so we have two ways to go with that. Yes, you could create legislation, but you also can improve administration. And so the Secretary of State's office has to do what it has to do with the rules at play right now. And that is, how do you give more support to the struggling precincts? How do you put more machines there? How do you increase the number of precincts and where, where the long lines are? Leo Smith, you get the last word on today's Political Rewind. And the first thanks for being with us. Mary Margaret Oliver, you know we always love having you on. Stephen Fowler, thanks for your great work at GPB News covering this whole election cycle. And Kevin Riley, always love our days uh, with you on the show. Um, Tomorrow we're going to take turn our attention to two extremely important cases that the United States Supreme Court heard this week. We've got a panel of outstanding constitutional law professors to talk about those two cases and to talk about the increasing politicization of 
federal courts. We'll do that more on tomorrow's show. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy and enjoy your freedom from political advertising and everything else having to do with the midterm elections, at least until the presidential campaigns start kicking in next year. See you all tomorrow.